So, you know, you're seeing the value. I think the floor for a CryptoPunk, the cheapest you can get one now is around $150,000. So it's one of those things that, yeah, wow. if you, yes, it's one of those things that if you have a CryptoPunk as your avatar, either you were early into the NFT game and, you know, you're kind of like an OG or you have the money to pay to be like, I have a CryptoPunk. The Madonna, right, I, right. I was almost certain she cursed me, but everything has gone well since then. So maybe she gave me the good eye, just disguised <laughs> as, maybe that was just the way she did it. I was hired to assemble a team to do these like video vignettes live on the red carpet. You know, we would do this like really quick three take sweep with cameras. Post Malone was like super nice. He was like, yes, let's do it. And he did this really cool like cheersing thing. Well, uh, but towards the end of the night, they were like, we think Madonna's gonna come and you know we think we can get her to do one so just stand by ready and we're like okay and, and we were all there like you know with our gimbals our cameras everything pointed her way welcome to the venezuelan diaspora project where you will find venezuelan entrepreneurs and change makers that we searched and interviewed to present to you My name is Jesus Bolivar, also known as Chubeto. So let's get to it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Venezuelan Diaspora Project. We're super excited to have you today because we have the famous J.N. Silva. Uh, he's an artist and reformed computer scientist and nft <laughs> entrepreneur nftpreneur welcome jn thank you thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here thanks man so uh thanks for taking the time so let's jump right into it um i'd love to start by talking about um nfts um tell us about what are nfts and why you are so excited and involved with that with that thing and whatever oh. nft means yeah so nft stands for non-fungible token uh, and they are, you know, a token on the blockchain that can be linked to represent, you know, pretty much anything. They can be linked to art, to deeds, to real estate, to personal identity. Uh, they're, they're just a digital certificate of ownership and authenticity that lives on the blockchain. Uh, now, you know, for the past few years, you know, there was a new token standard created to house NFTs. And since then, there's been a lot of different projects uh, that, you know, leverage NFT technology for, you know, mostly art, but now we're starting to see that translate into like gaming, uh, even like architecture. Uh, so it's a really exciting technology that I think is gonna, you know, truly revolutionize uh, the way we interact and, and the way we, you know, consider ownership in this new digital age. And, and what's the, and again, this is for folks that have never uh, heard of it, right? What is the relationship between NFTs cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin is the thing that most people know about. You know, for those familiar with Bitcoin, uh, you know, it's grown to be, uh, it started off as a transactional kind of a financial monetary thing, but now it has kind of transitioned into more of a store of value uh, as a currency, as a global kind of currency. And, you know, Ethereum uh, revolutionized everything because they were, you know, transacting on the blockchain with smart contracts and smart contracts you know allow just open up a world of possibilities when it comes to uh you know applications and you know these are called you know applications that live on the blockchain are called dApps or decentralized apps um 
So yeah, Ethereum and all these other protocols have kind of like added a new layer to this, you know, digital ledger technology that is blockchain. Uh, and now you're able to do a lot more things, whether it's, you know, applications that do, you know, decentralized finance or, or you have uh, video games that, you know, interact with smart contracts like Axie Infinity. Um you know, so this new technology has kind of like opened the new world to what is being known or being called Web3 technology. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Web3 is where I think everything is is moving towards. And, you know, it's kind of like the original vision for the Internet, which is like a decentralized global network. You recently launched your own, I mean, as a digital artist, you launched some NFTs. Tell us about how that went and, and, and the process that got you there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I've been in this space for, you know, about three, four years. And I, I was always just kind of find, following along with, you know, the developments in crypto, uh, the developments in blockchain technology. And I saw this like emerging um, hype around NFTs. And, you know, the first ones that I heard about were CryptoPunks and CryptoKitties. Right now, CryptoKitties, yes, CryptoKitties, where all what these like. What was CryptoKitties? Tell us the story. What, what was CryptoKitties? Because it was so quite... CryptoKitties, yeah. So it, it was this unique uh, kind of like almost a game, a collectible game, where there were you know thousands of unique uh, kitties, you know, or, or art that that was made to look like kitties uh, on the blockchain, and then collectors would go and bid for them, uh, and and you know collecting. I think at the end of it, NFTs kind of like really touch to this almost like primal, you know, thing that humans have to collect, right? You know, as, as hunter gatherers, you know, the, the very first form of collection was like rocks and, you know, shiny things. And, and, you know, eventually that grew to be valuable, right? Whichever tribe had the most precious stones and you know, precious metals and things that the, the goals and the collections, you know, so there's always been this relationship between humans and collect, collecting things of value. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, at a certain point, you know, in, in today's age, you know, you have the term hoarder, which means you're collecting too much and you're keeping too many things, right? And you have all of these huge collectors who literally run out of space because they're collecting so much, right? Whether it's like paintings mm. or sneakers or toys or action figures, right? And then NFTs really touch at this, you know, core sentiment of like, you, you can collect, but you're collecting all this stuff digitally that you own, you know, it's, it's immutable, you own it, you can track the transaction, uh, of, of when you bought it, where it came before before that, so you have like a provenance to it. Um, but now collectors can you know keep on collecting just digitally, so it doesn't take up all the space. So I, I know I've gone kind of off topic no, from no, no, CryptoKitties. Yes, sense. I've gone off topic from CryptoKitties, but you know that that was one of the first really you know collectible projects that took off. And you know during the the boom of 2017, people were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for a CryptoKitty. Right now, the problem with them, in my opinion, is that they their supply was way too big. Right, so you know when you pair NFTs and crypto and all this stuff, it's all about scarcity. So if you mm -hmm. have something that's way too abundant, the value is going to go down. Whereas if you have something that's you know scarce and you know has a finite uh, uh, supply, that's when the value goes up, and that's where a project like CryptoPunks comes in. Right, mm -hmm. so CryptoPunks kind of. Uh, popularized a new token standard uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. And they were originally, you know, 10,000, uh, I think 24 by 24 pixel 8-bit avatars, all unique one-of-ones with different traits uh, and different uh, sets of rarity, right? And originally, I'm pretty sure just pretty much anyone with an Ethereum address could have gone and just claimed a CryptoPunk, 
right? They mm -hmm. just gave them away to people with a Ethereum address. Now, only 10,000 of them will ever exist. And over time, it became one of these things where like, if you owned a CryptoPunk, you were seen as kind of like an OG in the space, right? So if you have a CryptoPunk, you're like, oh wow, this guy was early into Ethereum. And then, you know, the company Larva Lab set up a really interesting, you know, trading platform on their own website where people can, you know, bid and buy and trade CryptoPunks. And now as the NFT space has come around and the hype has been crazy or, or getting crazier, uh, you know, you're seeing the value of CryptoPunks rise exponentially because people want to be seen as... It's a signaling mechanism. Yeah, so it's almost like this, you know, uh, status signaling that is transitioning into the digital space now. So whereas before, you know, status signaling might be wearing like, you know, designer clothing or like an expensive bag or very expensive sneakers. You know, now it's transacting to like, oh, who owns this, you know, very valuable piece of, you know, blockchain art. Um, so, you know, you're seeing the value, I think the floor for a CryptoPunk, the cheapest you can get one now is around $150,000. So it's one of those things that, yeah, wow. if you, yeah, so it's one of those things that if you have a CryptoPunk as your avatar, either you were early into the NFT game and, you know, you're kind of like an OG or you have the money to pay to be like, I have a CryptoPunk, nice. you know? What, so, uh, taking us back internet history, right? It, it wasn't the, have you heard of the million dollar homepage? Yes. I, I, wasn't I've, that, I've like heard it mentioned first, before. Right. Wasn't the, that seems like it was the first sort of try at this like ownership on the web, right? Yeah, so the absolutely. Million dollar project was this guy who sold 1 million pixels and his idea was that he could sell like $1 each pixel and then, you know, companies could put their ads in there or whatever. Um, so would you say that was the first one? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to see. I mean, I don't know if it was the first first, but it was one of mm -hmm. those ones that you remember that are like, oh, yeah, this marked the turning point into like a new thing or a new way of thinking. Right. And it's just interesting that you say that because now there have been uh, projects. There's a really interesting project that just came up uh, about a month ago called Fractionalized uh, Art. And I think uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Don't quote me on this, but I think the website is like fractional fractional.art. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll check the link, but what they do is, you know, for now there's a, a few of these blue chip NFTs that have gone just to like incredibly high valuations, right? So for example, some of the CryptoPunks are, you know, multiple millions of dollars. So what this project does is they get this NFT, they lock it up in a smart contract, and then they fractionalize it in a token structure, mm -hmm. and then multiple people can buy into the ownership of this one NFT. So, you know, you can get uh, an Ape NF uh, uh, CryptoPunk, for example, put it in a vault, fractionalize it into, you know, 100,000 tokens, and then people just buy into the token. And, you know, depending on how much you buy, that's how much of the CryptoPunk you own. You right. Know? And then it, it, it can be like a way shared, to, Right, right. If I, yeah, if it's like shared object, ownership. We can, like 100 people can own this object. Right? Yeah. So it's like shared ownership of, you know, blue chip uh, NFT projects. So it kind of reminds me of the like, oh, yeah, you own a few pixels. You own a few pixels on this like larger scheme. So, so um, JN, let's take it back to, to basics. I want to bring, so let's say I'm an artist uh, and I produce uh, not only like physical art. Mm -hmm. Um, and how would I, knowing nothing about technology, is there a way to onboard me as an artist to be able to issue my tokens so that when I sell my arts, I could also issue a token to that person that I'm selling the arts to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the good thing is now over these last few months, you know, there's been 
a ton of information out on the internet, a lot of guides, uh, you know, a lot of tutorials on how traditional artists can get onboarded. And it's one of those things that once you get past, you know, this barrier of entry of like, you know, setting up your MetaMask wallet and, you know, loading it with a little bit of Ethereum. From there on, you know, minting, which is what, you know, minting is what it's called when you get, you know, your piece of art or your physical art or digital art and you kind of like upload it into the blockchain. That process is called minting, right? Uh, once you get that initial, you know, uh, barrier of entry of making the MetaMask and loading it up with Ethereum, it's a fairly simple process where you just like upload the art onto whatever specific platform, you know, you're, you're going to try to transact on. Um, now, I would say, you know, the easiest thing is you can go uh, on YouTube or, and look it up or, or just search up some guides on Google on, you know, how to mint my first NFT, for example. So and it is feasible. I guess my question was like, it's not that it's, not that it's, uh, it's super hard. No, not at all. And the interesting thing uh, is you're seeing a lot of, you know, people on all ends of the spectrum enter. Like I just saw there was a 12-year-old girl, her name is Nyla, and she made a collection of hand-drawn uh, drawings, right, of different styles of, of ladies. And the project is called Long Necky Ladies. They're like these beautiful drawings of, you know, females with like elongated, elegant necks and just different traits. Uh, and she did, I, I forget how many hand-drawn, you know, pieces there were. I want to say there were around 3,000 long necky ladies. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she, you know, she was able to get this project out there. And it's like a 12-year-old, you know, starting artist who just made a whole collection. And instead of it being, you know, hand-drawn on paper, it was, you know, uploaded and minted on the blockchain. And it's like incredibly successful. Uh, and it's like making the rounds. So I've seen, you know, very young artists enter the space. And I've also seen people who are, you know, in their 60s and 70s who are coming in and saying like, wow, I've been a traditional artist all my life. And, you know, this is revolutionary because, for example, some of them, there was this one case of this artist who said, you know, I sold a few of my pieces in the 1960s and 70s. You know, these pieces went for like a few thousand dollars. And now they're hundreds of thousands of dollars if you get them now. And I don't receive a cut of that, hmm. you know? So the, so the, the artist mm -hmm. was saying, you know, so now it's, it's doubly difficult for me to make work because not only am I competing with all of these new artists that are coming out, I'm also competing with my past self because, you know, can something that I make new now beat the price of these old pieces that I have on the market that they're not seeing any re revenue for? So one thing that I didn't touch on that is, you know, very uh, exciting about NFT technology is that if the piece of work comes from you know your smart contract, you're gonna get royalties on the resales of your artwork, you know, perpetually, potentially. So, so every time the piece of art changes hands, you get a cut as yes. an artist. Mm -hmm. And how do you define uh, that cut? Is it pre-baked into the, into the contract? Into the smart contract, yeah. You you can set you know right now what I've seen or or what the industry standard, uh, so to say, is about ten percent. Mm. So, you know, you kind of bake in 10% royalties because obviously you want the seller, you know, whoever's selling it, you want them to get a cut. And then right. normally the platform that it's being sold on also gets a cut, but then the original artist gets a 10% cut. You know, and that's mm. what's really exciting because you're seeing people kind of like, you know, put out, for, for example, there's a lot of photographers entering this, entering this space and they'll put out a collection of 30 photos priced very, you know, affordably. And once those collections sell out, you know, you're kind of pushing people to, acquire more on the secondary market and kind of, you know, get the secondary right. market going so that both the collector who bought it early benefits, but also you as an artist benefit from the secondary uh, market action. 
Right, right. That that's very interesting. Um, it's a whole it's a whole new world for sure for artists, right? Mm. Yeah, and I mean it's not only art. You know, right now that's the application that we've seen NFTs take off on the most, right? And it's captured the attention of creatives pretty much worldwide. Uh, but you know, I've also seen some very interesting applications in in other fields, and gaming, of course, is one of them. You know, gaming and collecting kind of go hand in hand. So mm. there's a lot of really interesting projects. You know, one of my favorite ones is called uh, Parallel, and Parallel wants to be one of the first major trading card games on the blockchain. You know, so mm. so they're coming from the angle of like you know Magic the Gathering and Hearthstone. These are you know huge, huge fran franchises that have, you know, tremendous user uh, bases and, and player bases. And, you know, NFTs can make it so that you can transact digital trading cards much easier than trying to get, you know, physical trading cards. Uh, and you can play the games on your phones and online, but, you know, the ownership of each of your deck of cards is going to be trackable on the blockchain. Um, so, you know, gaming is huge. There's, you know, Axie Infinity, which is kind of like a breeding and trading and fighting kind of like Pokemon style game. Uh, and they have what's called the play to earn model. So the better you are at the game and the more you train and you fight your, with your creatures, the more you win, you earn the Axie token and another token called SLP. And then you can go and transact these for these tokens in the open market on like a decentralized exchange. You know, so... Right. Interestingly enough, you know, this has changed the economy. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of Southeast Asian countries where it's like major news because people are quitting their jobs, regular day What? jobs, to play Axie Infinity. And now investors are coming in and creating scholarships where they'll, they'll set up, you know, huge computer rooms and they'll be like, well, these are my Axies. This is what I've breeded. You guys play the game. And it's I like started Ready thinking about this. One. Ready Player yeah. One, right? Absolutely. That's where we're moving towards. And, and you know, it was interesting because I, it was it started kind of like, you know, the, the news story started in Southeast Asia. And mm -hmm. then I started seeing Venezuelan friends and, you know, my cousins and people were like, oh, have you heard of Axie Infinity? Have you heard of Axie Infinity? Like we have these scholarships and people are asking us to play. And I'm like, whoa, that's interesting. You know, now it's reaching other parts of the world where this is like, oh, yeah, you can play a video game on the blockchain. And the better you are at it. The more tokens you earn, the more money. which, yeah. So, you know, it, it's one of those things that the play to earn model, I think, is going to start to become more and more prevalent uh, as time goes on because then both people win, right? The, the original issuers of the token win because obviously with every resale, the original issuer is getting a cut, but also mm -hmm. the people playing get a cut because, you know, the more you play the game, the more money you earn. Wow. So it's like a more efficient ecosystem, I think. JN, um, thank you for that NFT explanation. This is super, <laughs> super exciting. I want to switch gears to you. So I'm going to do a brief intro. Uh, so uh, I'm going to mention some of the folks that you have worked with as, a, as an artist, as a photographer. <laughs> so uh, JN has worked, uh, uh, I'm going to name drop, which you do on your website. If you go to jnsilva.com, you can see everything that I'm about to mention. So he's done work for Nike, Don Julio, Tequila, Sony, Spotify, Interscope, Samsung, uh, The Infatuation, Acura, American Express, Johnny Walker, Astro Gaming, there you go, a gaming company, uh, Bailey's, Lululemon, Lululemon, they make yoga pants, right? Yeah, yeah uh, training gear, exercise training gear. gear. 
Honda, Vans, MTV, Ducati. I mean, so very prominent names that, that you have worked with. How did that happen? How did you become a photographer? How did you end up working with all these incredible brands and, and, and you know, becoming a prominent photographer? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I started doing photography sometime in high school when uh, I was an only child for, you know, I think 16 years. And then my when we moved here, my mother remarried and, you know, had two siblings, a sister and a brother. And when we moved from Venezuela, we left all of our, we left everything over there pretty much. Oh. You were from um, Caracas, right? Mm-hmm, Caracas. Prado de Maria. And so, you know, I, when we moved, I kind of like lost all of my baby photos, every, you know, a lot of my memoirs, they were like, oh yeah, our family friends have them. And then, you know, over time they couldn't get them to us and then it changed hands enough and now I have no idea where any of those albums are. Uh, but when my sister was born, I was like, you know, I want her to have her life, you know, documented and, and someone just gave me a camera right around that time. So I started just taking photos of her and then my little brother was born and I started taking photos of him and I was always like super introverted. So like the camera just became a way for me to, you know, kind of like hide behind something and have something to do. So I wasn't awkward at places, right? So like, you know, parties and such, like, I, you know, I never liked going to a party unless I had a camera. Cause then if I have a camera, I'm like, oh yeah, I know what to do here. You know, mm -hmm. I'll capture this. Uh, so, you know, I went to college, I, I majored in philosophy and language arts which means no work after college, of course. Um, so then I, <laughs> so, you know, I kind of just stuck with photography and, and it just became a way to like, you know, see the world and, and, you know, kind of experience the environments around me, particularly in New York City. So I would just walk around with my camera in New York. And as you mentioned before, I was, you know, very much into computers and technology. And, you know, I grew up being introverted, like instead of being out at the parties, I'd be on the internet every day. And, you know, anytime a new, app or protocol or anything came out i'm just one of those people who's like oh yeah i want to see what this is about so like you know i was very early on to like napster for example and like limewire and like irc chats right and like aol chats and i've always just been like an internet person um so you know as soon as facebook came out i signed up when it was available for only like the seven colleges then they added that picture functionality and i was like whoa this is really powerful right like uploading all these photos of things I'm seeing and then having, you know, multiple people online see my work. I was like, wow, this is really cool. Before then, like, as a photographer, to get your work seen, you had to send it out to publications. And, you know, a lot of times they just never send you anything back. Whereas now I'm like, well, I could just throw it out there and, you know, my friends and people can see what I've been, you know, seeing through my camera. And, you know, I kind of just went with all, you know, MySpace came out, I was on there uploading photos. You know, so I've always just kind of been early, an early adopter of new technology, I'd say. So when Instagram came out, I was like, oh, this is perfect. It's an app for photographers where you can share your work. So, you know, I would just go around New York City. At the beginning, it was only iPhone photography that you could upload to Instagram. So I just went around New York with my iPhone, you know, taking photos and uploading the street photography and candid moments to Instagram. And I started noticing that there was like this emerging community of people who were trying to get into photography uh, and just liked, you know, observing the world and capturing it. So, you know, I started kind of like fostering all of these new creatives and, and trying to get us all together because, you know, up until then, up until Instagram, like photography was a very solitary thing for me. It was one of those like, 
go out by yourself and take photos for hours and then come back and upload them. And Instagram changed that for me and that I found all the, you know, similar minded individuals to be like, oh, maybe we should go take out, you know, take photos together and learn from each other. And the cool thing about photography and, and going out with, you know, different people is that you could be, you know, at the same location with the same lighting at the same time with 10 different people. And depending on their interests, you're all going to capture something different. Right. Like if you're with a good group of people, you'd be like, you know, I'll go out with 10 photographers and I'll be like, whoa, like, how did you see that? Like, I was there, too. You know, how did you what? So, you know, it was like a great learning experience for all of us. I think we all just pushed each other and I, you know, crafted and, and fostered this amazing community of photographers and creatives in New York. And, you know, through that community, you know, brands started to take notice uh, you know, and, and tell us the story about Sony. Yeah. So community building, you know, became huge. And, you know, in 2013, 14, you know, that was, I think when a lot of these emerging communities started to appear and, you know, someone approached me, uh, from, you know, funny enough, I helped this, uh, Instagram account organize a bunch of Insta meets they were called. Mm. Right. So Insta meets were like, you know, you get people together, you put a time and a place and people show up and then you'll hang out and then you post the photos under a specific hashtag. Right. And early on in the Instagram community, they were pushing this, you know, heavily. And there would be things called like worldwide Insta meet weekends where they encouraged people all over the world to gather and take photos together and share them under a specific hashtag. So, you know, I hosted a, a few pretty big meetups in New York City uh, under this account called Instagram NYC. And, you know, when the people that ran the account saw how many people I was getting out there, they were like, whoa, this is like something's happening here. This is huge. So they went and created a marketing agency called the Mobile Media Lab. And they started reaching out to brands and, you know, trying to connect, you know, these community builders with brands to try to get them to work together. And one of their first clients was Sony. And, you know, they, they knew that I was like a big community guy. And I also, you know, I, I have a, I, I taught at, a, at my high school for a little bit. So I have like this little teacher thing going on where like I can make presentations and teach pretty well. Uh, so they were like, oh, why don't you use this new Sony camera and, you know, do a presentation at our flagship store and, you know, invite your photographer friends and see how it goes. And I was like, all right, sure. Like I'll, I'm always down to try out like new gear. So I tried this little piece of uh, Sony software and a camera called the QX100, gave a presentation, we did an InstaMe, and, you know, it was like a smashing success. Like, Sony loved it, they, you know, sold a bunch of the cameras, my friends loved it because it was this new piece of camera gear that they hadn't seen before. And then from there on, Sony kind of, you know, they were like, whoa, like, you know, this community thing is, is pretty big, like, it's very powerful, you know, for you to be able to just randomly post on Instagram meet me here and then you know people come and you all hang out and you know for, for a common shared interest and they you know they're like we'd love to continue working with you and you know it's been a since then it's been a really amazing relationship where i give sony kind of like my most honest feedback on their cameras on you know their marketing strategies on their so community you get to try all the gear before it, it, it leaves for everyone else it's out uh, there for everyone else well so before, yes, I used to be able to do that more. Now it's more so like, you know, we'll get the gear and then we'll give them reviews. I'm like, all right, nice. what needs improving? What, you know, how can we make this better? And they've, you know, I've been working with them for over seven years now. And they've listened to so many of our, you know, concerns and requests and their, their, uh, 
you know, they're always open to, to criticism and suggestions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love working with them. Um, and I helped them uh, craft this, you know, uh, Sony Alpha Collective program, which is a group of, you know, younger uh, emerging photography ambassadors. And that's been one of the most powerful communities that I've been a part of because, you know, we have the support of a global brand like Sony and they do workshops for us. They, you know, they, they host all of these webinars and, you know, they, they've definitely contributed greatly to my growth as a creative. How, how was it like photographing Nike sneakers? Uh, I mean, that one was crazy. It started off because the relationship started because a friend of mine who, you know, did photography for them on the West Coast needed someone to do location scouting uh, in New York. So I started out just doing location scouting for Nike where I would just go and, you know, they're like, well, we need a gritty back alley, something where the light comes in this way. And I would just go around New York trying to find, you know, whatever they were looking for. And the first few jobs I did for them was a location scouter. And then eventually, you know, through the community thing and, and seeing how active I was, I used to just like, you know, if one of my friends got new Jordans or new shoes, I'd be like, don't wear them until I can come and take photos of you in them, you know, <laughs> while they're fresh. And I would upload them to, you know, my Instagram and eventually an agency contacted me and they were like, oh, hey, um, you know, we love the photos that you've been sharing of, you know, the, the Jordans in your feed. We'd love for you to be part of this uh, all-star game campaign that Jordan brand is doing. And I was just like, that was like, you know, at the time, my, my dream, dream job, you know, being a, a basketball fan my whole life, working with Jordan brand is like, you know, at the top for me. Uh, so it was really awesome. We got to go to the store and pick out our favorite sneakers that we wanted. Any and then sneaker? we had to like yeah wow and we had to like photograph them uh, you know all over new york city and it was for the all-star game in new york when it was there um and we got to go to like the michael jordan kind of like hall of fame exhibit that they did for the all-star game that year uh and since then i've done you know a, a few things here and there with nike but they're all you know they're always great to work with um yeah one of my favorite companies for sure That's awesome all right you got to tell me a crazy story uh from taking photography for these companies or like any any type like uh uh, uh something think, that you will never forget either good or bad, or bad. uh i think the wildest to me was uh i i'm fairly certain madonna gave me like the most evil eye i've ever gotten in my life from the anyone madonna. The Madonna. All right, um, all right. I was almost certain she cursed me, but everything has gone well since then. So maybe she gave me the good eye, just disguised. <laughs> as, maybe that was just the way she did it. But uh, we were at the MTV uh, Music Awards, the the, the VMAs, mm. right? And I was hired to assemble a team to do these like video vignettes live on the red carpet, right? So like you know when an artist came in the red carpet. You know, we would do this like really quick three take sweep with cameras. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we had a runner who would go, you know, to a van that was like parked down the block and edit like a, you know, 15 to 30 second like sizzle reel of, you know, this like really cool people on the red carpet. Uh, and it was great. You know, we, you know, did recordings of a lot of amazing celebrities. And then, you know, they liked it so much. They're like, oh, you guys should do the post. Uh, post award ceremonies and see if you can capture any footage of people after they get the awards. So we got moved to like the back of the press room. And, you know, I mean, the whole day was crazy because we were seeing, you know, huge celebrities after they won the awards. And, you know, we had a 
kind of like a talent manager asking them if they wanted us to you know do this thing for them and some of them were really amicable and friendly and like yes like for example post malone was like super nice he was like yes let's do it and he did this really cool like cheersing thing while he was like celebrating uh rita ora we did some really cool stuff with her um and then you would see others who were like no like what what in the world are you asking me for and it, it was interesting to see the dynamic between different celebrities so the whole day in general was wild uh but towards the end of the night they were like we think Madonna's gonna come and you know we think we can get her to do one so just stand by ready and we're like okay and we're just freaking out and it was like our little hallway was right behind the press room so as soon as the you know celebrity finished with the press they would turn around and you know we would be the first things that they saw so it was kind of like a toss-up between like yeah she's gonna do it or no she's not gonna do it yeah she's gonna do it and then at the very end, I guess someone like asked her something that she didn't like at the podium or something and she got upset and then they were like, okay, stand down. She's not going to do it. And as this was happening, she was like turning the corner and we were all there like, you know, with our gimbals, our cameras, everything pointed her way. So I think she thought that we were like already recording mm. and she just stared us all down. Like I, I've never been so frozen <laughs> in my stance. I was just like, and she just like stared at me the whole way to make sure that I wasn't doing anything with my camera. And I was the first one and she just passed by me and I just felt like chills. And I don't know if it was because it was Madonna or the way she looked at me. And she passed, you know, all the way. And then I turned around and both of my other friends who were recording were just like scared. <laughs> all, all three of us looked like we were pale. And then they, they, I just remember my buddy came up to me. He's like, Madonna just give us all the evil eye and I was like so, I so, think I'm she might. She, so I'm guessing she didn't do it no no because no, no. everything has gone great I think she yeah. blessed us but <laughs> it just awesome. looked it was the evil eye in disguise that's um, awesome that being backstage at the VMAs and this is what year this is 2017 2018 no. yeah I want to say it was 2017 yeah, I, right I have here. to tell you I haven't seen the VMAs in, a, in the longest time that means I'm just yeah. getting old yeah, it's right. one of those things that when you, when you, like the last time I watched, I was like, who are all of these people? I don't, I don't know anyone. Like almost, right. you know, the New York award shows. And I, I try to keep myself pretty informed, but there's a certain, yeah. you know, I'm at that point where I'm telling my little brother, like, what are you listening to? This is not music. <laughs> this is music. And he's like, ah, oh, you old timer. Let me go ahead and go. Mira, JN. JN. So for the folks who are listening and that are part of the Venezuelan diaspora, What's the best way to contact you uh, about NFT and about your work? And uh, are you honestly, open to that? Yeah, honestly, I'm pretty good about responding to DMs on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things like if someone calls me like, oh, hey, papana, oh, mira, chamo, or like, ah, la repa, or they put a flag or they put a bandera. <laughs> I'm like a hundred percent more likely to respond right, there to to someone that gives me like a Venezuelan ism, ism than some random person that goes like hello or yo. Like if you only give me like one word, I'm like okay, I don't know what you want. I'm not gonna <laughs> engage in this. But like there's people that are like oh you know if you if you tell me you know if you if you were very upfront about like why you're contacting me right. whether it's to connect or you know ask for advice or anything if you outline it you know I do eventually go through all of them and I, I do respond so uh, I, I gotta say that's Instagram true DMs. I gotta say that that is absolutely true because the way we met is through Twitter 
Yeah. Uh, and so, and until you're you sent me a DM separate. and I looked and I'm like, Caracas, I'm like, what? Yeah. yeah, yeah so, when it's on that. Diaspora Project, that's, all, <laughs> that, that's how you get me. That's the hook. There you go. There you go. All right. Uh, um, Jayanne, I hope this is the first of many. Uh, I hope we can reconnect uh, later on when you're uh, an NFT billionaire um, <laughs> or whatever happens in the future. Um, is there anything that you would like to tell Venezuelans in the, in the diaspora or in the US or anything that you want to say to close? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, one one thing that I'd, I'd like to say is that, you know, we're all stronger together and we all come from like a shared culture and we know what's been going on in our country for, you know, all of these years. And I, I think, you know, that bond is incredible and I think we should all embrace it. And I've been to a lot of events. You know, I was just at a Venezuelan uh, food and art festival in New York a few weeks ago, and it was incredible. Like, I've never seen so many Venezuelan people together in New York. And, you know, there was art, music, food. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of us, you know, might feel a certain way about having to leave or being displaced somewhere in the world. Uh, but I think if we all come together, you know, we, we can really make a change for the better in our in our culture and our society so i'm always you know ready and willing and able to you know try to come together to to do cool stuff yeah thank thanks for uh leaving the venezuelan flag in a good place i see you put it on your twitter feed so continue uh, doing great, great work all right take care guys see you in the next one